Well, join with me, if you will. Take up your copy of God's Holy Word, and the message will indeed be coming from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Two short verses with much to say, but I want us, just for context, to back up, if you will, and we'll begin reading at verse 19 from chapter 1. So, hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. For I know this, that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death, by death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore... Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, We come now with humble hearts to the proclamation of your holy word. Our great desire is to hear from you. 
to know your heart and grow in our understanding and application of your word to all of our lives. We live in a time when we are assaulted by the wisdom of man and worldliness of every sort. We are catechized in moral relativism, in autonomous individualism, and in a perverse understanding of liberty in almost everything we read, hear, and watch. But these things do not flow from a right and good understanding of your word. These are not the fruit of a righteous people. Help us, O Lord. Make us willing and eager to yield to the illumination of the Holy Spirit as we consider your word. Conform us to the revelation of Scripture in our thoughts and in our words and deeds and fill us with the humility of Christ so that we may render faithful service in the good works that you have ordained for us to walk in. Do this, we pray, for we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Every one of us gathered here this morning, with not a single exception, needs to be shored up, encouraged, and exhorted in the basics of Christian living. Christians, you see, never grow spiritually beyond this need. This need is one of sanctification, and it is a never-ending process. But what is sanctification? Sanctification is the divine act of making a believer increasingly holy and set apart unto righteousness on a practical level. As the Shorter Catechism states, that sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. This is the pursuit of holiness, and it represents the lifelong process of making a person's moral condition, their moral condition, come into conformity with their legal standing before God of being justified. Sanctification is God's continuing work in the believer who is justified through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we put on humility and let the mind of Christ fill our minds, fill our thoughts, and instruct the motivations of our hearts, it is a work that leads to much satisfaction in the Christian life. So let me ask you this question. Do you, do you experience an abundance of satisfaction in your Christian life? Man's chief end, we all know, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. However, this chief end is an ever-elusive and almost, well, it is, unattainable apart from the humble pursuit of personal holiness. And we will never pursue this holiness without a complete submission to the Lordship of Christ in every part of our lives, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our labors, in our music, in our recreations, and even perhaps most especially in our thought lives. 
There is no area of our lives that are accepted from Christ's lordship. And therein is the Christian's greatest comfort, greatest strength, and greatest satisfaction. Or as Piper might say, God is most glorified us when we are most satisfied in Him. And the Philippians were no different than us in this need. They needed shoring up in the elementary principles of spiritual growth. Even the most mature among them had not advanced beyond their need of being further grounded in the basic truths of Christian living. No doubt they shared some of the same questions that we probably have. Once I am saved by faith in Christ, what happens next? What takes place in my Christian life after being saved and before going on to be with the Lord in heaven? And so in verses 12 and 13 of Philippians chapter 2, we have the matter of our growth and personal holiness concisely and precisely explained to us. And as we have just read, the Apostle Paul stated that for him to live is Christ. And he has urged his readers to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. However, the questions remain. How do they live for Christ? How do they live in a manner worthy of their calling? How are they to experience growth in their Christian life? What Paul provides in these two verses is perhaps the most concise explanation of sanctification to be found in Scripture. These words are succinct, but potent in what they teach, in what they teach on the subject of spiritual growth. Here we have the necessary balance in Christian living where we both see both our part and God's part in the whole process. When considering our growth in godliness and holiness, we tend it seems, to be prone to one of two extremes. Some people are given to waiting passively, as it were, for God to zap them into holiness because they believe that to do otherwise would be to rely on their flesh. Others work themselves into a spiritual and emotional exhaustion because they believe that God has already done His part and the rest is up to them. But neither extreme is biblical. God has already worked in us to bring us into His spiritual family through the work of Christ, yes, and has given us the Spirit to continually empower us to walk in obedience to Him. God's work, God works and we work. Thus, as we walk in the power of the Spirit, we show that we are truly one of God's children. And we then shine as bright lights in this dark world. So then, with this introduction, let us consider the text before us under three headings. First, we need to see the necessity of obedience. Secondly, we will examine our personal responsibility in working out our salvation. And finally, we will explore God's divine activity in Paul's exhortation to work out your salvation. So first, the necessity of obedience. Let's take a look at the text before us again, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. 
It is this opening part of verse 12 that I want us to consider first. Paul begins this verse, Therefore, my beloved... So we should see immediately that this is addressed to who? It's it's addressed exclusively to Christians. Not a word of what follows applies to or can apply to unbelievers. If we miss this point, it will lead us wrongly to conclude that these verses are teaching that someone must work to earn their salvation. However, this charge is not delivered to unbelievers, but to my beloved. This is a clear reference to those who are in the circle of God's redeeming love. True, God has a general benevolent love for all mankind, but He has a special, specific love for believers. Although God gives general expressions of His common grace, He reserves a special love for His own elect, far deeper and more specific than His general love for all mankind. This is why Paul addresses the Philippians as the beloved. Unbelievers are never referred to with these terms. Paul continues, as you have always obeyed. Obedience is the word of God, to the word of God is is the clearly marked path upon which sanctification moves forward. Every step in the Christian life is to be illuminated and characterized by the truth of God's Word. And the corollary is therefore true also that any step of disobedience is a departure from the revealed will of God. Paul is indicating here that from the moment of their conversion, the Philippians were committed to keeping the commandments of God. Paul notes that they have always obeyed. Theirs was a habitual lifestyle of obedience to the Word. And obviously this is not meant to imply perfect obedience, for that would be impossible. Rather, this indicates a new desire to obey from a new heart that increasingly pursues obedience. In this sense, when they first believed, the Philippians immediately obeyed. And as they began living under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ... And Paul explains that their obedience has, not, has been not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul recognizes that he does not have to be in Philippi at their side in order for them to live their Christian lives effectively. Their primary dependence is not upon the Apostle Paul, but on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philippians cannot use the absence of Paul as an excuse or that it is too hard to obey the Lord. And though Paul is away from them, he commends them for always, always walking in obedience to God. These Philippian believers began walking in the Word when Paul was with them and have continued to do so now that he is gone. Though he is not with them now, they must continue walking down that path of obedience. And this is, this is quite remarkable when we consider it, is it not? This is contrary to our natural impulse. We all know that children are much more likely to obey their parents when in the same room with them than when the parents are out of sight. Drivers are far more likely to obey the speed limit when the police car is visible out there. But obedience when no authorities are visible, 
when no one is watching, is evidence of a heart that truly desires to submit to legitimate authority out of a willing spirit and the right motivation. That is, in effect, what Paul is saying happened with the Philippians. Their obedience deepened and grew in Paul's absence, which is evidence of the work of God's Spirit transforming them into the image of Christ. As a Christian, the same path of obedience has been set before you in your life. Being a believer who is saved by God's grace does not, in the least, negate your responsibility to keep God's moral law, which is outlined in His Word. You're not free from the law of God. You're free to obey the law of God. There may be times, and there are times, when you're without that special spiritual support from someone who helped you to come to faith or to grow up in the faith. But as with the Philippians, this is not an excuse for compromising on your obedience. When you were born again, God, God did some amazing work in you. He, he took out your old heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh that is alive and responsive to His rule and to His Word. And he And further, God put His Spirit within you and He wrote His law upon your heart and caused you to walk in obedience to His Word. A firm, uncompromising commitment to obeying the Word accompanied by true, serious, genuine genuine repentance when you fail, and you do fail, and you will fail, are two marks of a true believer who has been born again. Obeying the Word accompanied by genuine repentance. This is the Christian life. John writes in his first epistle, Now by this we know that we we know that we know him. Now by this we know that we know him if if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in Him. Now, these are convicting words, aren't they? John makes it clear that once we have been saved, our lives are not one of let go and let God. Not at all. The Christian life is one characterized by the necessity of obedience. So the question is, do you see this in your life? Do you see the necessity of obedience And do you desire to be faithfully obedient to all that God has revealed in His holy Word? Are you hungry for God's Word? Do you examine your life in light of the truths of Scripture? And do you let it do its work within your life? And do you quickly repent of sin when God shines the light of the truth of His Word on your errors, on your sins, and you fall before the face of God in repentance? And obey. And obey. And secondly, we come to personal responsibility in an often misunderstood passage in Scripture. We read, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul exhorts this. 
In pursuing obedience, Paul urges the Philippians to work out your own salvation. They are commanded to put effort into their salvation. In the Scripture, salvation, you've heard this many times, is represented in three different ways. as past, present, and future. And these, are three, these three designations involve justification, sanctification, and glorification. In justification, believers are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. That's when we say that we have been saved. In sanctification, we are saved progressively and continually from the power and practice of sin. We are being saved. And in glorification, we are saved ultimately from the presence of sin. We will be saved. And so the mention of salvation in this verse, therefore, points to our sanctification and daily Christian living. The Philippians were not to work for their salvation, but to work out their salvation, just as we are called to do. They were to work out what God had already worked in them. And in using the word work here, Paul uses an imperative verb, a command that carries the the force of a divine command. These words mean to work thoroughly at something, to take pains in laboring at it. And this means we must expect to expend energy in growing spiritually. And thus, believers are to work out and express intangible actions, thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes, the inward reality of the salvation that God has granted to them in Jesus Christ. You need to work it out. It needs to find expression in your life. It is, in effect, a call for the outward actions of the believer to match one's professed beliefs to such a degree that the outward actions are unmistakably the fruit of the gospel taking deep root in their personal lives. And just as a gardener must cultivate the seed that is planted in the ground by watering laying down fertilizer, removing weeds to ensure that one day a healthy plant will emerge from the soil and even bear fruit for all to see and enjoy, so must the believer cultivate the gospel seed planted in the soil of his heart by utilizing the various means of grace that God has given, faithful participation in the sacraments, reading, studying, and hearing God's Word and prayer, to ensure that a gospel-shaped life will emerge from the transformed heart of a Christian. But even as all the watering and fertilizing and weeding in the world does no good if a seed is not planted, all the means of God's grace that are given will be of no benefit, no benefit whatsoever, if the gospel has not been planted in the human heart by the Spirit of God. In effect, the call to work out your salvation is another way of saying, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, as we read in chapter 1. It is only those who have been made citizens of God's kingdom through the saving work of Christ, proclaimed in the gospel, who are able to work out their own salvation. Believers are to live in a manner consistent with who God has declared them to be by virtue of being in Christ. This is our personal responsibility. This is our part. We need to own the fact that spiritual couch potatoes grow little in grace or personal holiness. 
being in prayer, studying the Word, and then obeying it and applying it to our lives requires serious spiritual work and places physical demands upon your time. We must prioritize these things. Every believer must submit to God and resist the devil, as James writes, and exercise or discipline themselves unto godliness, as Paul exhorted Timothy. And Paul uses an athletic analogy as he writes the church in Corinth. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Are you expending the energy necessary in pursuit of personal holiness? Or are you just coasting? Are you exercising your spiritual muscles, bringing yourself under subjection to the Word of God? Or are you being spiritually lazy? In his well-known work on holiness, J.C. Ryle wrote this almost 150 years ago. I've had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. He's writing in the U.K., Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. The standard of living has become painfully low in many quarters. The immense importance of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior and making it lovely and beautiful by our daily habits and tempers has been far too much Overlooked, end quote. No doubt Bishop Ryle was right to be concerned. Since working out our salvation does require hard work on our part, then what will motivate us to give ourselves to this good and necessary labor and to keep doing so over and over, day by day, in the months and years that lay ahead? We could consider many motivations. But Paul here mentions just one. Sanctification must be carried out with fear and trembling. This is a a soul-gripping fear that grips to the point of trembling, quaking with fear, you could say. This, This is understood rightly, the state of a Christian doing his utmost to fulfill his duty because he knows to whom he owes that duty. This is to comprehend in the very core of your being the greatness and might of the Creator. It is to behold His majesty and glory, for it is to be utterly inconceivable to be found in any way wanting in God's sight. And the only alternative to fulfilling our duty before the face of God in fear and trembling is to do so in unbelief and presumption That is a deep pit that we do not want to fall into. For what would that be evidence of? 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and to be subject to His judgment. And let us not forget, even as we wrestle with this difficult term to, be, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling before the face of God, Paul gives this context, uses this phrase, fear and trembling, in a letter to Christians who re- and repeatedly emphasizes joy in Christian living. The gladness that believers experience in the Lord grows out of the fertile soil of fearing God with reverential awe. (coughs) The Philippians were to be sincerely earnest in their Christian life. There was to be nothing casual in their approach to pursuing holiness. And know this, God is not a kindly spiritual grandfather sitting passively in the sky. Don't let those picture books corrupt your children's minds. God is not a teddy bear. God is a lion who loves us. But His love does not mean that we are at liberty to domesticate Him. But He is not safe. As Mr. Beaver put it in The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is the high king of heaven whose law is perfect, whose love is boundless, whose mercy is everlasting. And because of this, we're called to tremble joyfully in our daily walk with God. And finally... In the third point, (coughs) we come to the divine activity. Here we find the wonderfully comforting news. News that is connected to the exhortation to work out your salvation. Apart from which, we would be doomed to failure with eternal consequences. Paul now turns to the other side of the coin of sanctification... He moves from personal responsibility to the divine activity within a believer, writing, For it is God who works in you. Verse 13 begins, God refers to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. The Father has sent the Holy Spirit to conform all believers to the image of His Son. God uses His Word to prune His people for greater fruitfulness. And God has begun a good work in them at conversion. And know this, He will continue this good work in them throughout the whole of their lives. You see, God is continually active in a Christian's life. He never ceases from sanctifying us in the ministry He has called us to. He is constantly engaged in producing holiness in every Christian life. Though it will not always feel like God is at work in our lives, He nevertheless is always at work in His people Do not let the dips in this life bring you to discouragement. God is at work. Do not let depression overwhelm you overmuch. Look to God and be lifted up. He is at work in you. He is relentlessly bringing about spiritual maturity and He even uses those low points in accomplishing His purpose. God is not passive, but dynamic and actively producing our sanctification. And this divine activity is not in conflict with our personal responsibility 
to work out our salvation. John Murray helpfully explains, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relationship strictly one of cooperation, as if God did His part and we did ours. God works in us, and we also work. But the relationship is that because God works, we work. End quote. And, and let us not forget here that we see God is working in the two ways that we most need, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. God works by changing our wills and our desires, bringing them more and more into conformance with His will. And He also enables and empowers us to be able to do, to do, to actually accomplish the good deeds that He has ordained for us to walk in. Both our wills are affected and our ability to be compliant and to obey Him and to work according to His will. God works both sides of this, and both of these we desperately need. But of course, we are stubborn in our sin. We're stubborn in our pride, and our spiritual laziness opposes the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and therefore we must daily die to our sin. We must press on in the uprooting of sin and the cultivation of holiness. We must fight the good fight of faith as Paul the Apostle did, and we must fight the good fight, and as we do so, our appetites for godliness increases, and our taste for sin actually diminishes. And that's great news. As Chalmer puts it, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Thanks be to God that He works in our desires as well as enabling us to walk in obedience. And as God does this sanctifying work in us for His own glory and for His good pleasure, Paul writes, He is at work in us because He loves to cultivate the purity of the, the heart and the mind and the character in His children. As a father would seek to encourage and exhort his children and even discipline them to live by the standards of the family, so God nurtures that which conforms to His own nature it brings great pleasure to God to see people grow in personal holiness. It delights God to see His image restored in His people. And so as we ponder these truths, and even the weightiness, the sheer weightiness of our need to work out our own salvation, aren't you glad, people of God, that verse 13 is here inseparable from verse 12? As Matthew Harmon observes, without verse 13, verse 12 would be a terrifying command from God. The call to work out our salvation apart from the enabling of God Himself would be enough to provoke despair in even the most religious. But behind every God-given imperative lurks a God-performed indicative. And such is the case here in verse 13. The reason that we as believers can joyfully pursue working out our salvation is that God is the one working in us. He works in us through His Holy Spirit to produce godly desires and intentions that He then carries into action through us. And all of this is done to the delight of our God. End quote. What a glorious truth 
And so I speak to you as friends, as neighbors, as fellow saints in this church body. Be encouraged, dear saints of God. Work out your salvation, yes, with fear and trembling, yes. But remember, faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. Our sovereign God is at work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Don't give up. Press on. Fight the good fight. And be ye glad. Rejoice forever in that which God creates. For behold, He creates Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, We are ever thankful that you are the God who works efficaciously in the lives of your people and that your sovereignty extends to the motivation of our hearts and the effectiveness in our ministry and all this quite despite our weaknesses. O Lord, we humbly ask that you would be pleased to open our eyes to those particular weaknesses in each of us so that we may engage the battle against sin and work out the salvation that You have graciously wrought in our lives. Be pleased to bring forth such a harvest of fruit in our lives that the glory of our God and the beauty and majesty of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit will be manifested, not only in our lives, but also in the lives of those in this community and beyond, that all would be according to your good pleasure and to your delight. This we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom, for we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.